not been spilt in vain. Elizabeth shivered, and not just because the lofty hall was chilly. She felt quite overcome with gratitude to God, who had brought her safely to this place. She was twenty-five, and all but two of her years in this world had been testing. But she had been honed from fine steel. She had survived bastardy, scandal, controversy, and accusations of treason and heresy. Converted to the true Protestant faith in childhood, she had steered herself steadily through the stormy waters stirred up by her Catholic sister, the late Queen, and come at last to a safe harbour. Who would have thought that she, the least of King Henry's children, would one day wear a crown? Sir William Cecil, faithful, clever friend throughout the years of trial and testing, took his place at Elizabeth's right hand laying before her the accession proclamation for approval. It would be cried in every town and city in the land and sent to royal and princely courts throughout Christendom. Thank you, William, she said, twinkling at him. An unwonted smile creased his long, serious face and he bowed his head, stroking his beard. A stout Protestant of thirty-eight and a clever lawyer, he had effortlessly slipped into place as her chief adviser. She knew she could trust his wisdom, his ability, and his fidelity. He was a man who liked simple pleasures, hard-working and discreet, and above all, trustworthy. He had proved himself in the dark days of her sister's reign by his quiet but constant support. Madam, there is a matter of public mourning for the late Queen. Three days should suffice she told him. She doubted that many would mourn Mary for long, not after her savage persecution of heresy. Mary had sent three hundred Protestant souls to the stake. That must now stop. Elizabeth had already given the order, sparing all the poor wretches who yet remained in prison, awaiting a dreadful death. She would never have her subjects, even Catholics, burned for their beliefs. She would not make windows into men's souls, so long as they showed themselves faithful and obedient. Next? Your Majesty, we must remove to London as soon as possible. So many have come here that there are no lodgings to be found for them. They had been arriving for days, a steady stream of courtiers who had abandoned the dying Mary to seek favour with her successor. Elizabeth shuddered. Heaven forbid that that should one day happen to her when she saw death approaching. Cecil was going through his agenda. There is your majesty's coronation to be planned, but we can discuss that anon. As for shifting the court and all your majesty's household and staff, I would advise the urgent appointment of a master of horse. Elizabeth's eyes scanned the expectant men seated around the table. Somberly but richly clad, like herself, They were all substantial persons of rank and breeding, hard-headed and ambitious. She realised that, as a woman, it would take all her skill to manipulate them to her will. But there were ways of handling that, she smiled to herself. She would ration her favours so that they would be all the more prized, make her servants work hard for their rewards, and lead them on to live in hope. Her mother had done it, even with her awe-inspiring father. And so, therefore, would she. 
Some of these lords had served Queen Mary, reluctantly at times, she knew. There sat the earls of Winchester and Sussex, who had escorted Elizabeth to the Tower in the dark days of 1554. Clearly, contrary to their will and better instincts, she did not hold it against them, for they had shown her all the kindness they dared. There, too, were Throckmorton and Knollys, staunch Protestants both, now able to profess their faith without fear, and Shrewsbury, Arundel, Pembroke and Derby, shrewd men of experience who had turned their coats to the wind more than once. The clever lawyer, Nicholas Bacon, William Parr, brother to the late Queen Catherine, whom Elizabeth had loved but wronged, she remembered painfully, and Lord Robert Dudley. Robert, magnificently dressed.